if you didn't know, this summer they're going to release a fifth Indiana Jones movie. Harrison Ford is 80 years old. It has to be all CGI at this point. Maybe he's performing some, some stunts still, I don't know. Uh, we'll find out soon enough if that fifth installment is any good. But for my money, the first Indiana Jones is the greatest one, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And if you remember the plot, uh, Dr. Jones is recruited to go and track down the Ark of the Covenant to try and keep it from falling into the hands of the Nazis early on in World War II because Hitler has it in mind that he's going to find the Ark and wield its divine power to conquer nations and take over the world. And if you've ever seen the movie, the depiction of the Ark is actually not that far off. It's pretty good in terms of this, this uh, chest that was about you know, four feet long, about two feet wide, overlaid in gold with the angels on top. Pretty close as the movie pictures it. But that's where the similarities end. Because as the film imagines it, the, the Ark of the Covenant is this potentially great tool for violence and destruction. But as we see it in the Scripture, and we'll see it today, the Ark of the Covenant is actually an instrument of God's holiness and His presence and His mercy, His great mercy for His people. And this all begins for us in Exodus 25. And I'll tell you up front, we're going we're gonna to survey a good portion of uh, Exodus this morning But what's happening here is all important. We're going to see God's establishment of the Ark of the Covenant and also the tabernacle that surrounds it. And uh, and then also the priesthood of Aaron and his sons. These are massive events, both in the life of Israel and, and really they carry all throughout the Scripture. They're very prominent throughout the Old Testament and they ring very loudly even in the New Testament. So what we're going to read today matters uh, all by itself, but it certainly matters for us because at each turn, what we're going to see is pointing us unmistakably to the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so I want to begin today, as as we're going to cover a lot, I want to remind us of where we are. Remember the, the great story of Exodus, that God has rescued His people Israel out of Egyptian slavery and is now leading them to the promised land. But there's an interim. It ends up being 40 years, in fact. The people are traveling there, but they've not yet arrived. At this point in the the narrative, Israel is stationed at the foot of Mount Sinai as Moses goes up the mountain to receive the law and the instruction of the Lord. And so right now, these people are travelers in the wilderness. They don't have a land yet to call their own. They don't have any crops. They have no houses They're traveling around in tents as they go. So in Exodus 25, the chapter begins with the Lord calling for a voluntary offering from the people, all kinds of materials, which will go toward the construction of a sanctuary. Here's how God commands it. Chapter 25, verse 8, the Lord says, Let them construct a sanctuary for me, that I may dwell among them. In the very next verse, God defines this sanctuary with the word tabernacle. This is going to be a holy place set apart for God's presence there among the people. Now, when we read details like this, they don't come across as very shocking or strange perhaps to us. But this really is amazing what God is 
commanding here and, and, and in a sense, inviting himself into. Y'all, the fact that God is planning to make his dwelling down among the people is a shock. It certainly would have been a shock to Israel. See, Israel, they would have had no problem declaring that our God is in the heavens where he sits on his divine throne and rules the, the world in righteousness. All that's true. But for God to willingly condescend like this, to bring himself down, to exhibit humility, and to, in a sense, to make his home among the people in a tent. That's what tabernacle means. It's a great big tent. And so in a very real and manifest way, the Lord is going to live among his tent-dwelling people in a tent of his own, right there at the center of them. Now, if that's all we knew, that would speak volumes to us about the heart and the character of God, that he does not uh, remain aloof, far away, in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases, yes. But his heart is not disinclined to his people. No, he wants to draw near and dwell with them and among them. That's God's heart from the get-go. And as always, certainly when we read of God's purposes in the Old Testament, there's always more in his mind than what we simply read on the page. God has a bigger picture here. And so what we're going to see today when we talk about the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrifices, these great big ideas that God sets forth for his people, all of these are going to find their true and ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. And we'll land there here in a moment for each one. Okay, so the first thing that God's going to, to, to show Israel, beginning in verse 10, he's going to command and instruct the Ark of the Covenant. Now, it's interesting, to me at least, that God is planning to, to have a tent built, a tabernacle. I would think that the tabernacle would come first and then the furnishings, right? Get the house in order and then fill the house. But God actually starts with the center, the Ark, which is going to be the thing that is, is truly central and everything else will kind of reside around it. And I think we'll see why as we go. So look with me at Exodus 25, verse 10. Here's God's instruction given to Moses for the people. He says, they shall construct an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide and one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out, you shall overlay it and you shall make a gold molding around it. Now look down at verse 16. You shall put into the ark the testimony which I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. Now skip down to verse 21. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I will give to you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat... From between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. Now, easy point of confusion here because the word ark is being used. This is not Noah's ark, all right? And I'm not joking about that. Sometimes we read the word ark and we think of a great big boat. 
This is, it's, a, it's essentially, you've, you've seen, uh, if you've seen a hope chest, you've probably seen something about the size of the ark, about four feet long, about two feet wide, overlaid in gold. And inside this chest, we're going to be a couple of items, but chiefly here, God says, I want you to put inside the stone tablets of the testimony, that is the Ten Commandments, the law that God is giving to Moses and to Israel. So the law is going to be on the inside of the ark. And then the ark, the chest, is going to have a lid. And God spends a lot of time describing the lid, which he calls a mercy seat or an atonement cover, because it's there at the mercy seat, the Lord says, his presence will dwell. Now, the ark was going to be surrounded by uh, a special curtain that separated it from the rest of the inside of the tabernacle so that the ark would reside in a smaller space, a special space called the Holy of Holies. Y'all, within this curtain, only one person could enter, the high priest, in this case Aaron, and only one day per year, what we call Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And so if, you, if you're inclined to, to study up on this, Leviticus 16 gives a lot more detail on how the Holy of Holies operates and how the high priest enters in. But y'all, he had to enter in this one day a year with absolute reverence, in complete fear and trembling and awe and worship. And when the high priest entered through this veil, this curtain, he would bring with him the blood of a bull, which served as the sacrifice for all the people. And then he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat for the atonement of Israel's sin. For the whole nation, the blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat that they might have atonement and forgiveness. Now, y'all, this is a stark image altogether. Because if you think about it, the law of God, which resides on the inside of the ark, the law which Israel has broken in their sin and rebellion, and yet the law is covered over with a lid, a mercy seat, on which atonement for sins may be made and then accepted. And so the ark is all at once a place of pure holiness and righteous judgment, and simultaneously it's the place of God's purest mercy and atoning love. It all happens right there within the Holy of Holies. This is why God begins with plans for the ark before he gets to the tent and the tabernacle that surrounds it. Because the mercy seat is going to be, in a sense, the greatest expression of God's presence, God's holiness, and God's mercy. And so there is an expansion from here. And, and y'all, there's a lot of precious details we won't touch on this morning. But within the, the larger uh, internal part of the tabernacle, there's going to be the altar of incense and the table of showbread and the golden lampstand. Outside the tent, there's a courtyard, which is open air, but it still is fenced in where the proper worship of the priest will take place on the outside. The courtyard has a bronze altar for other sacrifices. Y'all, chapters 25 through 31. All right, that's a lot of homework, but y'all could, you could, 15 minutes. It wouldn't take you 15 minutes. There's a lot, a lot of detail. Easy to get lost in the details, but I would appeal to you for, uh, for what we can't cover all in one sermon. It's very, very important for us to understand. But here's the larger point, at least as I see it. The Lord, in all of these commands and instructions, 
is governing the worship of his people and establishing the basis for their purity and ultimately for their identity as those who belong to God. They are the ones that God has called into covenant relationship with him. And y'all, this, it, with any valuable relationship in your life, whether family, marriage, work, anything, we have boundaries. We have things that we set up as that which defines the relationship. And that's what God is doing here in all of Israel's worship and all of their pursuit of him to know him and love him. God establishes the proper and gracious boundaries so that they would be his distinct, unique people in the world. So when we read the details and we, we, we tend to maybe want to gloss over these things, all the color of the curtains and the length of the curtain rods and things like this. And we say, this can't be important. But y'all, in everything, in the furnishings, the curtains, the incense, the sacrifices, all of it, it carries the purpose of purifying these people and setting them apart for covenant relationship with God. What kind of God would he be to say, y'all figure it out, all right? Worship me the best you can. No, God clarifies what it means to worship him and to be distinct for his glory. And we see this again in terms of purpose. God is not arbitrary in the length of curtain rods and so forth. There's a purpose here. And we see it in Exodus 29, if you're quick, 29 verse 43. Listen to what the Lord says concerning the tabernacle here. I will meet there with the sons of Israel and it shall be consecrated by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priests to me. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Now, you notice a lot of eyes in that paragraph we just read as God references himself. He's, what he's saying is very important. I will meet with you. I will consecrate you. I will dwell among you. I am the Lord your God. This is all God's idea, God's initiation here. And God's not doing it because there's a need in him that must be met. If we think about why, why would God uh, orchestrate this tabernacle to be built among the people? Is it because God needs a place to dwell? Like a hermit crab needs a shell. And that God has to have something that we construct for him to inhabit. No, that's not the point. God doesn't need that. Uh, Paul, actually, in Acts chapter 17, makes a great statement on this that covers what we're reading, but it's, it's true for all, all of life. It's true as we understand God. Acts chapter 17, listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. The purpose of the tabernacle and the ark and the altar is not to meet any needs in God. The purpose is that God is coming down to meet our greatest need. He is the one entering in 
making provision for the people, granting mercy for the people. This was not Israel's idea or initiation. This was not their desire. Let's build something and perhaps God will be pleased with what we make and He'll come down and take habitation. No. This is God's heart flowing downward to us in all of its details and purposes. And so we see the tabernacle, the ark, the altar, all of it designed for the worship of God's people, designed for the intimacy that God desires to have with them. There's one more piece to this puzzle today. It's all important. It's not just physical stuff. It's the priesthood. It's the men that God will call and appoint to be his representatives, his mediators. This is Exodus 28, verse 1. God says, Then bring near to yourself Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the sons of Israel to minister as priest to me. Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. Now from there, the Lord gives very fine detail and instruction concerning what the priests are to wear, how the priests are to be washed and consecrated in order to make sacrifices, setting these men apart for this most holy work, the work of the priest. In chapters 29 and 30, the Lord gives instruction on the priestly sacrifices, what is to be sacrificed and when, the burning of the incense, the anointing of oil, And y'all, if you continue on, if you read through Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, into Joshua, Judges, into the, the Chronicles and the Kings and the Prophets, my goodness, you're going to see how essential this role of the priesthood really was. That this was not God's kind of side project. These men were not just present, you know, near the tabernacle, eventually the temple. They weren't just there to conduct worship and administer sacrifices. The priests were all important in terms of how the people related to God. And God to them. I mentioned this a second ago that the priest was, was designed to function uh, as a mediator. These men were there to represent the people before God and then represent God to the people. And so if we think about these priests, they, they really stood in the gap in so many ways. And there's a beautiful picture of this. We're, we're still in Exodus chapter 28. And down in verse 29, God is describing a particular piece of the the high priest's clothing. It's the breast piece, which is made of gold, which is going to lay over his chest as he makes his sacrifices. And listen to what God says about this. Exodus 28, verse 29. The Lord says, Aaron shall carry the names of the sons of Israel in the breast piece of judgment over his heart when he enters the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. Aaron is going to bring the names of the 12 tribes of Israel over his heart as he enters in to make atoning sacrifice for their sins and for his own sins. This is such a powerful image that we're being given. The names of the people over his heart. This isn't simply, well, anybody could do it. You know, if if Aaron gets sick, just send in, you know, a substitute, just somebody who can sprinkle the blood. Anybody can do that. No. This is designated for the high priest who will represent the people. All of their hopes 
for atonement, for forgiveness, for mercy, in a sense, rest on his administration of the sacrifice. He carries them on his heart when he enters in. And so, y'all, as we're surveying, again, very much a survey, right? These very important elements of God's relationship to Israel, what God sets in motion here, the ark, the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifices. This is serious stuff. But we should state the obvious at the same time, all right? We are in an abandoned shoe store at the present moment. I don't know if you knew that. (laughs) The old shoe gallery turned into a church. We don't have any stained glass or a steeple. But you know, it goes even deeper than that. As we read through the narrative here of God's tabernacle, his worship, his prescription for the people. Y'all think about this. We Christians, we have no ark. We have no holy of holies. We have no tabernacle or temple for that matter. The shoe store does not count. We have no bronze altar. We have no priests administering sacrifices. We have none of it. Why not? And this squares with with a a great big point that we tried to make also last week. There are features of the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant, that are intended by God. He always intended for these features to serve as shadows of the good things to come. There is a substance that these shadows are intended to point us to. And the Scripture tells us that the substance is Jesus Christ. That there's good reason why we don't practice our worship in the same way that Israel did in all of the things that God is instructing here. It's because they are all ultimately pointing us to a fulfillment that takes place in Christ. And so walk with me here back through these three key things we've seen today, the tabernacle, the ark, and the priesthood. And let's just watch in brief here how Jesus fulfills each of them. First, the tabernacle. Now remember, the tabernacle, the whole purpose, God says, is that it would be a space designed for him to dwell among his people, a place for God to dwell presently and intimately with us. Y'all, in John chapter 1, in the New Testament, the Apostle John speaks of Jesus Christ entering into the world. It's called the incarnation, God becoming man, as Jesus did the baby in Bethlehem. And listen to what John says about the incarnation Chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh, Jesus became a man, and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John wrote those words originally in Greek, and y'all, the Greek word for dwelt is the word for tabernacle. What John is actually saying is that Jesus took on flesh and tabernacled among us. Now, by the time of Jesus, the the tent had been replaced by the temple in Jerusalem, but it served the same function. It still contained the Holy of Holies. But listen to what Jesus in his ministry says to his kinsmen, the Jews. The Jews are demanding a sign that would validate his authority. Tell us who you really are. Prove that you're as great as you say. And listen to what Jesus says. This is John chapter 2. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? 
but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus is the very person of God come to dwell among us, not a building or a tent made with human hands, but the very Son of God making his dwelling with us. It gets better, y'all. Okay, what about the ark? What about the mercy seat? What about the Holy of Holies? Matthew tells us something in his gospel, chapter 27. It reads almost like an incidental thing, like a detail, but it's filled with meaning, especially as we understand the context here from Exodus. As Jesus bleeds and dies on the cross and declares that it is finished, all the work that God had given him to do, the forgiveness of sins. Listen to what happens. Matthew reports this. Chapter 27, verse 51. As Jesus dies on the cross, behold, Matthew says, the veil of the temple was torn into from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The veil of the temple was torn into from top to bottom Why does that matter? That's signifying a divine work of God from heaven, top to bottom, not the work of man from bottom to top. God is doing something here in the rending, the tearing of this veil. Now, what veil are we talking about? This is the curtain that separates the Holy of Holies. The one place no one is allowed to enter save for the high priest one day a year. The place where God's judgment and His mercy meet where atonement for sin is made right there at the mercy seat. And what Matthew is telling us is this, that in the death of Christ, the curtain is destroyed. All that separates sinners from God's mercy is removed. Because God's mercy has been satisfied. Once and for all, His justice has been satisfied. And now, if we ask this question... Who may enter into God's presence to find mercy to cover sins? Just Aaron? Just the high priest? No, in Christ the answer is anyone. Who may enter into God's holy presence? Who may enter through the veil to find mercy to cover their sin? Anyone. Who comes now on the basis of Jesus Christ and His blood shed for us, His blood sprinkled as it were, on the mercy seat, the atoning blood of our Savior. Now, how can Jesus do all that? How can He do it from the cross, accomplishing the sacrifice that would rend the curtain in two? It's because, last of all, Jesus is our true high priest. Jesus is the true tabernacle. Jesus is the one who makes sacrifice for the sake of mercy and forgiveness. And Jesus does it all because He is God's appointed high priest. Priest. This is one of the dominant themes. If you read through the book of Hebrews, uh, so much of Hebrews is about this. I'm just going to read one portion for summary's sake from Hebrews 7, verse 23. Listen to how the contrast is made between the former priests, as we've, as we've been reading, and now the one true high priest, Jesus Christ. The former priests, the Scripture says, on the one hand, Existed in greater numbers, there were more of them because they were prevented by death from continuing. When one died, another had to take his place. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him 
since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. The true and perfect high priest has made the true and perfect sacrifice once for all, not the blood of a goat or a bull, but the offering up of himself. And so we can declare that Jesus is God with us. He is God in us. He is God for us. He accomplishes for us everything that the shadows were pointing to. He is the substance. And now He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him. Because as a good mediator, as a good priest, He always lives to intercede for us. Y'all, one time, this is a, a, a 2003 maybe, there was a guy on the Mississippi State campus who was preaching the Bible, but he was doing it wrong. Uh, He was real mean about it, very legalistic, very loud. And I came upon this. I was was really growing in my faith. I was memorizing Scripture. I just memorized Hebrews 7, 20-whatever it was we just read. And and, uh, there's this girl standing next to this guy in tears, and he's berating her about how much of a sinner she is. And I walk up. to I'm trying to intercede for this poor girl. I don't know her. But... um, She just looks at me and she says, tell me Jesus really loves me and that he wouldn't reject me just because I'm a sinner. And I stood there and said to her, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. He always lives to make intercession for you. And she walked away uh, happy, not mad. She walked away happy. Uh, And it occurred to me in that moment that this is real forgiveness that Jesus has come to give us, both her and me, including this guy here, whether he ever got it or not. It's real forgiveness. It's real intercession, and it's eternal. We get to come to Jesus Christ freely by faith in His name, not the works we perform, nothing we construct or administrate. We simply receive the true and perfect sacrifice from the true and perfect high priest, and He saves us forever. That is good news. Y'all, there's a a pastor years ago now named Dick Lucas. He made an illustration that I I found very helpful, especially on days like this, and it kind of encompasses what we've been looking at here as we survey Exodus and consider now the fulfillment that we have in Christ. He's imagining, the illustration is this, it's, it's an imaginary conversation between a brand new Christian way back now in the early days of the church. We're in the Roman Empire. Someone has just become a Christian, and he's got a pagan neighbor And they strike up this conversation, and the neighbor says to him, I hear you have a new religion. That's great. Tell me, where is your temple? And the Christian says, we don't have a temple. Jesus is our temple. No temple? But where do your priests work and do their rituals? We don't have priests to mediate the presence of God, replies the Christian. Jesus is our priest. No priests, but where do you offer your sacrifices to acquire the favor of your God? 
We don't need a sacrifice, replies the Christian. Jesus is our sacrifice. And finally, the neighbor says, what kind of religion is this? And that's a good question, isn't it? What kind of religion is this? You know, it's a great reminder for us today when we come to somewhere like like Exodus, where God commands the construction of the ark and the tabernacle and in very fine detail the priestly garments and the sacrifices and the the anointing oil and the curtains and and all of these very seemingly minute details, we might be prone to read this and think, my goodness, God is imposing an awfully strict form of religion here, isn't He? But I hope we see the bigger picture, even here in Exodus, that God's heart is filled with mercy and grace. His desire is to draw near, to provide for them the means of worship and the opportunity for atonement and purity and forgiveness. His desire is to make them great. And He can only do that by drawing near to them. That's always been His heart. And so as we see it in Exodus, I hope all the more we see that because of Jesus Christ, we live in an even brighter light concerning God's mercy and His grace and His heart. Because we have received the gift of His Son by faith. Y'all, what Israel knew in shadows, we may now know in substance, eternal fulfillment, because we have received the Son of God, come from heaven to dwell with us, acting as our high priest in things pertaining to God and forgiveness and holiness and mercy. How did he do it? By laying down his own life, the perfect sacrifice for the sake of sinners. And now he is able to say forever, anyone who who draws near to God through him, he always, always lives to stand in the gap for us. He is our Savior. Y'all, I want to invite us this morning, if God should should incline your heart to respond, to, uh, to ask for prayer. It doesn't have to be concerning this particular sermon or topic. If there's anything at all that we can can pastor you through, talk to you about, or pray with you over, then I want to invite you this morning. We'll have uh, Aaron and Evan will be standing in the back of the room by the doors uh, here as we pray and as we sing. If you'd like to step back and take them by the hand, step out and let them pray for you this morning, then I would invite you to do that. I want to invite us, uh, regardless, we, we all ought to respond when we come to God's Word and hear of His grace. And and this is my encouragement here. We just sang it right before the message. We sang of the curtain being torn in two. That right here this morning, what God intended to communicate to the world in the rending of that veil is every bit as true now as it was the moment Jesus breathed His last. That the way into God's presence and His favor, His acceptance, is not through any work of our own but it's through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. It's through the giving of His own life for sinners so that now we may enter in with great confidence because we declare that God's throne is a throne of grace, the grace given to us through the Son, Jesus Christ. And so however God should lead us to respond, let it be that we accept Him and love Him and receive Him afresh this morning, knowing 
the extent that Jesus Christ has gone to to express to us the great love of God. Would you pray with me? Father, make this morning, I pray, uh, maybe a watershed for us, an opportunity for us to see, uh, even only in very broad strokes, to see the law of Christ fulfilled, to see uh, the, the tabernacle fulfilled in Christ, to see the mercy seat perfectly uh, fulfilled and exemplified in the shedding of the blood of our Savior, seeing uh, Jesus Christ, our high priest, standing for us, loving us, drawing near to us. And our sin is no barrier to His mercy, which covers which forgives. Father, would you, would you help us this morning to have such a, a, a bright and shining picture of the Word become flesh, of the one who is, who is mercy, who is the demonstration of your love. Father, um, for us this morning, we have, uh, I, I know and I trust, Lord, we have our own version of religion that we, that we kind of bring to the table, Father. And most of us uh, are, are looking to ourselves, at least at times, looking to ourselves for validation, for acceptance. It's got to be something in me. It's got to be something I do. And I pray, Lord, you'd help us this morning to see what is true, that, Lord, there is nothing good in us that would merit your acceptance. There is nothing you demand from within us, Lord, to produce salvation. You have sent us your Son. And from beginning to end, from A to Z, He has accomplished all things to give us life in His name. And so, Father, I pray this morning that You would fill us with such joy and gratitude. Give us, Lord, this great sense of honor. We, we, get, to, we get to be your children. We get to call you our heavenly father. There is nothing in the world that can compare. And all because of your initiating grace, your sending of your son for us. Lord, I pray that we will stand in a moment and sing with absolute um, fullness of joy and thanksgiving. May it be in the name of our great high priest and our savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.